Welcome to Stories That Stick, a podcast series about the stories that shape us. So the belief was at the time that education is liberation, that that's how you get on in society. Listeners, before we begin, please know that we start all our conversations with death, because we believe that death truly makes us reflect about the life we live, and we aim, in our own little way, to share the life of our guest. And in today's episode, we have Nels Abbey, a journalist and author who joins us to discuss his debut book, Think Like a White Man. That being said, we hope you enjoy today's episode. If you died right now, how would you feel? Um, accomplished, but I'd also feel a little bit concerned about my family. I'd be worried about them, of course. And I'll be, it's actually a very, very quick question because quite literally the palms of my hands start to sweat a little bit. But yeah, I'd feel that, I'd feel like anybody would feel like, like it's been a loss. But I've spent my time well and I've lived an exemplary life to some degree. Okay, well, let's actually look at your life a little yep. bit. Let's go into your past. first decade mm-hmm. what is one of your fondest memories that you have so i grew up in in foster care with a german and a, and a scottish couple but i remember one particular thing because if the flip side came to it a decade later there's one day i got lost i was living in um derby i think it was about seven or eight years old and i saw some policemen passing by and i waved to them and they stopped and i said that i'm lost i don't know how to get home and they were lovely. They just put, put me in the back of their car and took me all the way home. And the flip side of it struck me about a decade later on. And I then moved to Nigeria to do some part of my secondary education because I was one of those bad kids who just got shipped back home. Living in Nigeria, I remember I just got back from boarding school and I got back to Lagos. And then I got a little bit lost. And I saw some policemen. And I thought to myself, yeah, let me go and ask the policeman how to get home. I just said to him, excuse me, sir. I am lost, can you please take me home? And the guy said, oh, come, 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 come closer. Say that again. And I said, I'm lost, can you please help take me home? Before I could finish it, he just pulled out a horse whip and hit me with it twice. So it's just like the flipping treatments of how police treat you in different continents. It made me put things in context a little bit at the time. That's really fascinating. But more so, I never knew that Nigerian or West African parents would send their children to foster. It's very, very common in the 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s. So there's a lot of different reasons. One of them, there's a lot of different reasons. I think it's a bit of a controversial topic within the communities, particularly people of a particular age. And there's a film coming out of Court Farming about it in a few months, maybe a year's time or so. And the purposes were, A, these were new immigrants to the country. And often Nigerians and Ghanaians, particularly Nigerians in this regard, they would come to the country to study and to work. So they were working towards a brighter tomorrow. And sometimes some of our elders were overstudying. I don't say it in a bad way, but they'll get a PhD and often they weren't getting any jobs of it too at the same time. Mm. So they'll get the PhD, but they'll be driving cabs. Or they'll get the, um, they'll get the degree, but they'll be cleaning floors or working in manual labor roles. But the persistence, the belief was at the time that education is liberation, that that's how you get on in society. So they would study by at night or a daytime or so and then work at the flip side of things. So they had no time to raise children, but they wanted to have children. So they would actually foster their children out. Some of them at the exact same time, too, would also believe things like, hey, in order to get on and compete within this society, you had to understand this society. And maybe the thinking was that perhaps the children growing up with white 
working class parents will help them better understand the society and help them better blend in and compete within society. So they actually let them get fostered by them too at the same time. That's really fascinating. Did you see yourself in two different worlds or? Not really. It was kind of funny because so when you're a child, the race thing doesn't really kick in when you become conscious of it. And I think I became conscious of it when I was about seven or eight years old. And my foster mum explained to me that, look, the reason why I'm getting suspended. Actually, I learned two things. When I was little, I'll get into a fight with somebody else. I would get suspended. He would go to school as normal. And it kept happening, all those sorts of things. And um, she would say something like, look, it takes two to tango. Why is my son um, the one getting suspended? And then I just remember around the same time, too, my sister came to the park and said to me, Nelson, I've got a bone to pick with you. And I followed her all the way home. And when she finished talking to me, I then said, just where's the bone? And then she said, no, that is the bone. That's, that's what it means, a bone to pick with you. And then um, they then explained to me, that's what a metaphor is. No. Although I was royally annoyed with my sister, she interrupted my play to have some sort of <laughs> conversation with me. But um, I thought it was a bone to pick, two to tango. So that was the foundation, I think, of me as a writer. But also at the same time, too, in realm of my foster mum, that was the foundation of me knowing about race or everything else and how it, the impact it actually has that I was somewhat visually different. Well, that's interesting that you say that because your book, Let's Not Be Around the Bush, Why You Actually Here, is really quite compelling and specifically trying to help people of colour, but let's say black for this context, associate themselves as close to whiteness. And in the context of whiteness here, we're talking about power and professional success. We're being satirical in this book. We're being satirical. So I'll probably give you a bit of background. Okay, sure. Uh, A few years ago, I was contacted by this man called Dr. Brule Whitelaw III. Hello? Hi, my name's Dr. Brule. And he explained to me that he's a professor of white people studies, that he wants to get his message out to the world on how black people can actually flourish and compete and overthrow the white man and get to the top of the ladder. I put the phone down, <laughs> and then he called me back. And then he started going on that like, I am too race and the white man, what Warren Buffett is to stocks, what Colonel Sanders is to stealing recipes from black women, what all these other... Di- and he just kept bragging for a little bit of time. And I thought, it was, okay, this guy was not serious. I put the phone down again. Then he called me up a third time. And he said to me, look, this is very serious. You, Nels, Abby, I've read your work in The Voice. I've read what you're trying to do and I can help you take it to the next level. We must get this message out there. I thought, was, okay, let me hear what, what he had to say. So I met up with him a few times. I thought, okay, he's a pretty interesting guy. He had some interesting theories. And we met up countless times after that. Had to do a lot of learning from him and everything else. And then from that, essentially, I packaged it all together into Think Like a White Man right. and see where we can take it from there. That's a fascinating origins. Is uh, Dr. Boule White Lord III white or black? He's a black man. He's a very, very black man, yeah, with a white wife. Would you classify him as pro-black? I would classify him as pro-black to his back teeth. And yet he has a white wife. Yep. So can one be pro-black and be in an interracial relationship? I think we probably have to ask Frederick Douglass, one of the founding pillars of pro-blackness. I think we have to ask, um, who can we think of right here? Bernie Grant. He's probably the most pro-black black man you could think of in Britain. He had a white wife. I mean, there's barely anybody in Britain or so of any great significance who actually has a black spouse. That's painful to hear. Yeah, yes, it's painful. to. I think it's, it's the way it goes. There's something uniquely about that within Britain. And I, I think... There's many things that could be the origin of it. I don't really, I can't put my finger on it 100%. I think sometimes, um, depending on where, where you progress into, if you're getting into certain realms or so, you'll find, if you're not careful, that the only people you're associating with will probably be white people. So if you get into the corporate world or so, 
the likelihood of you being in the corporate world and having a black spouse, it diminishes significantly because the majority of people you will meet, the majority of people you know, the majority of people therefore you will date are likely to be white people. I mean, in a professional context, but one would hope in your own social and personal life, then the balance actually is, um, I want to say, readjusted. But what I do I think find, that's a good point. Yeah, but what I do find fascinating as well is the notion of whiteness equals power. That's the basis of the satirical of the satire we do. We think like a white man. Whether we like it or we don't like it, there is with with all great jokes, there's an element of truth to into it too. So there is an element of like, hey, whiteness within this world does equal to some degree of power. Um, white maleness does equal to some degree of power. That also differentiate between white men who actually have physical impunity, real power. The Trumps, the Blairs, um, the Jeff Bezos, all these other people are so. And white men who are just like guys like you or I, I would assume, you're, though you're a very powerful man. But yeah, but, <laughs> but guys, white men who are just like, hey, trying to make a little bit of money for themselves, provide for their families, they still have power. They still get paid more than us on actual, on average or so. They still are more likely to find it easier to navigate through the society than they would anybody else. No, I see that. Well, let's uh, fast forward a little bit. We're now going into your next decade primary school secondary school and yeah. college we all have that one teacher that we can't seem to uh, forget and i believe dave dini dave Dineen. Uh, he was Dineen. he was my lecturer at a college around the corner from here called southwark college okay. in um at southwark so he was this brilliant teacher he taught us economics and business studies he was the best lecturer the best teacher i ever had hands down he was not even close okay so he would always be able to teach you certain things but make entertaining so Going to his class never took effort. It was like you were going for a stand-up comedy session. And everybody was so, so good. So take, for example, you teach about the life cycle of a product, which is, of course, um, research and development, enter the market, growing, maturity, then, of course, decline or death. So when you're saying about things like enter the market, then you look at one of the guys, say, or as Christian would call it, market penetration. And uh, <laughs> of course, everything it was full of innuendo, it was full of everything. And he was such a funny guy. And until this day, my friends and I Google him to find out where he is or what happened to or anything else. He's just where gone. He's he? just disappeared. We don't, don't know, know where he is. He was this effortlessly really, really funny guy. And I think also if I go back to him and I think of the concept of Think Like a White Man, being around him and seeing that, hey, how he could actually make really, really serious topics sound as engaging and funny as possible. Amazing. Amazing. So curious. Were you reading any fiction, non-fiction at the time? Is yeah, at the time. That... I think getting to my late teens, coming back here, visiting New York, I um, was on a street corner one day. And this was in the Bronx where they sell books on the streets. I think I had about 10 maybe $20 there. I thought, let me just speak to the bookseller over here. And I asked the guy, what should I buy? And then he said, he pointed to one book. And then everybody else started to say, yeah, son, buy that, buy that, son. <laughs> you got to read that, son. And then, um, then I just bought it. And it was a book called The Coldest Winter Ever by a lady called Sister Soldier. And it was the birth of something called street literature. And it was about a 15 year old girl whose father was a drug dealer. And then he gets taken down by the police and then what becomes of her and how she has to navigate her way through society. So she's gone from being a very, very wealthy child, protected, living in this house of red Porsches and beautifulness and everything, even though they lived in the project. And her mum was this beauty queen and everything else. Then her dad gets taken down. And then they learn that, I won't give away the spoilers, but it's so brilliant that book i can say is part of why i'm here today because that was really like full throttle creativity and very very different the language was not just like polished great etonian or public school english language it was ebonics and when you're reading it you're thinking to yourself are you permitted to write like this 
and I don't want to make, yeah, you can, you can be a lot more creative than, uh, than Chebe or Orwell or so. It's interesting that you say that because when reading this book, there are times where I'm like, oh, this seems to be written from a white person's POV about blackness. That's the first time I've heard that. Right. Um, that's the first time I've heard that. But can you give me an example of yeah, why? No, yeah, certainly, of course. So, Tina in a suit. Oh, yeah, the street in a suit. Yeah, yeah Tina. Street, yeah, yes. yeah, in a suit. But it's a I, real person. Yeah, I legit... And that, that scenario in the lift over there that I described over there, that really That happened. really... But insofar as, like, the colloquial, like, you know what I mean, kind of... You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. It, that's what it means. It felt like, ah, uh, I don't... I don't, I yeah. don't know, but, you know, to be honest with you, I think what is great art is things that polarise. Mm. You know, so if it didn't have a reaction whatsoever, then it's bland and I don't even remember things like that. Of course. But if I had a reaction, then I'm like, okay, good. Yeah. It doesn't have to necessarily be positive, but then again, you know, you can't necessarily enjoy everything. Yeah. Of know? course, well, I really appreciate the feedback because, look, um, the key thing about this is, look, when you're a writer, <laughs> normally you go on a program, you do something else, and everybody just says to you, hey, man, you're the best thing ever. And then they go on Amazon and just pan the book afterwards. Yeah. So it goes, well, look, man, I really appreciate the fact that you told me that that particular point wasn't the one that you didn't really think that it really hit the spot. Yeah, but yeah. Not, not, not just necessarily her, but when I was just saying insofar as at times it felt like it was written from a white POV. Yeah. And I think what, so if is, I take Boulay Whitelaw, for example. Yes, please. If I, if I look at his voice, Boulay Whitelaw is a grandiose, almost ridiculous black person sometimes. His voice is up here and he's pompous. He's, um, he thinks like a white man. He speaks like a white man sometimes too. And when I say he speaks like a white man, he is politically incorrect. He has no filter whatsoever. But at the same time too, he's an academic. So he's trying to sound as grandiose and as posh as possible at the same time too. Trying to make it come across that, hey, um, almost with that, I'm better than thou. But the key problem is this, right, with him, is that so then what he's trying to do is down with the kids moment or so. It's purposely driven to almost make you cringe a little bit like oh god almighty this guy just stick to your voice in those moments i i thought of it almost like um your dad showing up to a party in the 80s tracksuit thinking that is what the children wear and it's like oh dad just go home so yeah yeah that's kind of why i thought with him so yeah but i do get what you mean no no perfect because i'm glad that then you've explained it in that way because that is exactly what i was receiving yeah but uh no it was really fascinating and it was really interesting and i was like Am I putting your blast on here? No, you're no. not. Are you sure? Of Nails? course not. No, no I'm sorry. Okay, you, you're handling it like a troop. Books at that current time in your life were really quite important. You are, still are. Yeah. You know, and evidently still are because yeah. that's what you do. But you still manage to find yourself working in the bank. Look, I always knew that the realm for me was the creative world. I have nothing against bankers to this very day. In fact, all of my best friends are or were bankers and the funny thing about it is this even when i was working in the bank i always knew deep down for me that i wouldn't be here forever that this for me was a crossing the road and once i get across the road or so i'm going to get to where i'm going to i knew that the creative realm was where i was going to do well for myself it just reminds me if i give you an example i remember reading somewhere where kanye west said that in 1996 he listened to an album called hardcore by little kim um kanye heard the album and was crying he listened to the album, listened to music and everything else. He knew deep down that given his shot, the production that he could have done for this album would have been much better than what was on it. And when I read that, I was kind of related to it because I knew deep down that once again, given my shot, a lot of what's out there or so, I could do better then. And I read Ta-Nehisi Coates had an interesting quote. He said that the thing about writing is this, is that if you want to become a writer and you want to succeed as a writer, the one thing you have to do is keep on writing because most people will drop out. And eventually, by process of elimination or so, it will bore down to you. 
And then there was something else that um, Tyler Perry, whose films are not really my, my cup of tea, 100%. And I say that as a snobbish black guy, because all snobbish black people, <laughs> they, that, always, yeah. they always have to pre... Yeah. But he does, he's a good actor. But I was listening to him and he was pointing about success. And he said, many people come to him and say to him, how do you succeed? How do you get to where you're going to? What happened to you? Everything else. How did you, how did you become you? And he said, look, for him, it just boiled down on that one idea, that one thing that he knew he had to do. And from there, everything else would grow. And for him, it was a particular play that he did. He spent all of his money, did the play. And he said about 12 people showed up for the play. All of them were his family members. The following year, less people showed up. All of them, he knew them. The year after that, blocked the year, but he persisted. And then he reached one year or so, a thousand people showed up. Then the next night, 2,000. And from there, he is today a gazolti multi it <laughs> But it's, it's that, and I think just him, so I'll just wrap this up really, really quick, because no, no, no. I know I do one. But he said that, and then I just remember once again, too, there's something he said that was interesting, and it inspired part of what was actually wrote, written in the book, too. He said something about when he was asked about racism in Hollywood, a lot of people dismissed him for his answer, but when he was asked about racism in Hollywood, he responded, I wouldn't know about racism in Hollywood because I'm not the right person to ask about it because I've never experienced it because he's been his own boss from day one. And a lot of people just said, oh, yeah, well, look at him, tap dancing for the white man over here or so, ignoring racism. But he wasn't ignoring racism. He was being honest that he hasn't had to contend with that because he hasn't put in the place where he had to contend with it. He was able to circumvent it via his own means. And it was something I found to myself that was fascinating. We're now going into your, well, no, not your final decade, because you've got many more decades <laughs> ahead yeah. of you. Thank you. Uh, 100%. You are a father. I am. Congratulations. Thank you. As far as I'm aware of, one of your happiest moments. Mm -hmm. Is this one of the books you would hope for your daughter to read? I think so. Yes, I would. Because I, I think it's one of the books that I would hope for my daughter and her friends to read as a take on what we were going throughout the day and look at in some degree of horror and awe of what we had to go through and hopefully they are not actually having to go through worse things. I went up and down areas with a cosh, hoping some black bastard would come out of a pub and have a go at me about something, you know, so that I could um, and it's revealing that what happens in London is black on black crime, even when the person committing it is like me, has one white parent, one black parent. I asked the Home Secretary, why is it that still in this country, black lives matter less? So I'm hoping this makes for a better future, for not just for them, but for all of us as a society, that we can create some degree of understanding of where we are, who we are, and how we can do better. Or at least let's laugh at ourselves. No, of course. And I think we often do that anyway, just as people, you know, through adversity, we find humour. Of course. But the notion of this being satirical, can you legitimately say, you pick up this book and you will actually, if you do adhere to some of the advices, especially like the 187 rules. <laughs> do's you, and don'ts. The do's and don'ts, yeah. right? You will be better off. Look, the overarching message, particularly in relation to Winston, Winston was Wule's black mentor, which was, again, was the message I take from a Noel Clark or the message I take from a Tyler Perry or the message I take from even an Issa Rae, for example, people who just founded something for themselves and grew it outside the actual corporate world, I think fundamentally you will be amazed as to how far that can take you. So that is the key thing over there. But can I put my hand in my heart and say some things? Yeah, absolutely. So if I take, for example, 
if you look at chapter number six, it says it's called see no racism, hear no racism, um, speak no racism. That sounds harsh, doesn't it? It's essentially saying that you have to ignore racism within the corporate realm in order to get on. It's also 100% true. And on that note, we'll leave it there. <laughs> no, Jake, now, if you want to continue. No, I think that it's, um, it's, it's also, yeah, there's many, many different things in there that it's, again, just as often prove profits. So, um, often, so, and within jokes, there's often truth, particularly the funniest ones. And I, I honestly do believe very firmly that, yeah, you'll pick up things in here and you'll learn a lot. It will help you navigate through this, through the tough parts of the corporate world and will help you get through um, things at the same time too. I did take a look at one's credits. Yep. Forgive me. Please. There's only five people. And there was one that I even put ambiguous. So technically there was four people <laughs> of colour yep. in this entire book that was, a, that was credited. <laughs> Tell publishing me more is, about publishing. Publishing is white. Publishing is a white industry, essentially. All the creative realms. If you go into, I don't know, I look, I, up until very recently I worked in the biggest broadcast in the UK. It's white. Mm. Even its former... Um, Director General um, Greg Dyke described it as hideously white. But, but you know what it is? The funny thing about it is that in terms of the editorial side of this book, the captain of the ship essentially is Dr. Boulay Whitelaw with little assistance of myself or so. Both of us are black. Um, those are the people who wrote the book. The editor of the show is, of course, a white lady or so who is very, very much in tune with black content, I would say. Somebody who very, very much champions um, black writers across the UK. If I can mention his name, Slain Your Lane, for example, Yami and Elizabeth, my brother Cortia Newland and so on and so forth. And I think it speaks to the um, accomplishment of getting Think Like a White Man into the world. Because A, it's a very black book, and it's unapologetically black. And it somehow managed to find its way through a white industry, and it's going to make its way to the shelf. And it's probably got the blackest name of any book you could probably think of ever. So, so when you read it on the tube, did you read it on the tube at all? I did. How were the eyes when you felt them on you? I'm not going to lie to you, I didn't even look up, really. Uh, no, you did I, not. No, because when I'm engaged in whatever activity, I tend to solo out. Well, there's some feedback for you, engaging. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, sure. But yeah, I, I get what you mean. I see what you mean. It's a very, very black book. It's all we tried to, I tried to make it, the as I wrote in the acknowledgements, I tried to write the blackest book possible. Also, I think it's got the words black and white in it over 2,000 and something times. And um, the N word probably at least 100 times or so. And um I think in terms of actual euphemisms for white people and everything else, countless times and everything else. So, um, yeah, so we did it. It's going to be a tough one for you, but you're allowed to take one book with you to, I don't know, let's say Venus. What book, bar your own, are you taking with you and why? I would take a book on how to fly back to Earth from Venus. <laughs> I think it's be self-explanatory because somebody has to come back and crack some racial jokes in our society and dumping me on Venus ain't going to crack it. Well, Nels Abbey has been an absolute pleasure. And prior to letting you go, I would like to you to tell the people how they can find you on the World Wide Web. And when they do, is there anything you'd like them to do? I would like them to say hello, and above all, I'd like them to buy the book. But you can find me on um, on Twitter and Instagram at the same name, which is at Nels Abbey, which is at N-E-L-S-A-B-B-E-Y. And um, you can find me there in those two places. And um, yeah, speak to me. Let's have a chat. I'm a friendly and approachable guy. Yeah, especially Nigerians. Get at him as well. Are you Yoruba? I'm not Yoruba. It's a problem. Can I just say something about Nigerians right now, right? 
that Yoruba and Hausa and Igbo people have such a big, they're the white people of, of, of Nigeria, I'll be honest with you, right? Because they think that they are dominant. If you're not them or so, you don't really exist. They're, they're the Brexiteers of, uh, of Nigeria. Wow. I'm actually Shakiri. We are a minority ethnic group within Nigeria and we're being suppressed by Yoruba and Hausa wow. and Igbo people. <laughs> Help us. But no, but overall, right, so I'm a Shakiri, but we're from the Niger Delta. We're the people of the Niger Delta. Uh. Our language is very, very similar to Yoruba and um, we love all Nigerians, all people. So, and um, I even put it in the book when it describes me. I describe myself as a British Nigerian Shakiri writer. Once again, thanks very much Thank for you. coming on Stories That Stick. And guys, as always, do get in touch with us and make us be better, better, better. Stay tuned. Take care. Bye. Today's episode was produced by Ade Bambala. Sound designed by Chris Orise. And if you'd like to be featured on Stories That Stick, then please do get in touch. Blacticulate Productions.